Many of you may remember the evening on the 4th of November, 1995, when the Prime Minister of Israel, Yitzhak Rabin, was assassinated at the end of a rally in support of the Oslo Accords. The assassin, and his picture should show up in a second, was Yigal Amir, a 25-year-old former Haster student and far-right law student at Bar Ilyon University. Amir had strenuously opposed Rabin's peace initiative, particularly the signing of the Oslo Accords, because he felt that an Israeli withdrawal from the West Bank would deny Jews their, quote, biblical heritage, which they had reclaimed by establishing settlements. Amir had come to believe that Rabin was a rodef, meaning a pursuer who, in, who endangered Jewish lives. The concept of din rodef, the law of the pursuer, is a part of traditional Jewish law. Amir believed he would be justified under Din Rodef in removing Rabin as a threat to Jews in the territories. At his murder trial, a police investigator testified that Amir had asked for cake and wine to toast Yitzhak Rabin's death. And I'm grateful to N.T. Wright for this insight, but if you want to understand Saul, the persecutor of Christ, there he is. The same kind of commitment to the people and the, and the state of Israel, the same concern to make sure that the leaders did the right thing, to protect the state and, 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 and establish it, and the willingness to kill if you thought that someone was taking the state in the wrong direction. That's what drove Yigal Amir, and that's what drove Saul. We're going to read this morning from Acts chapter 9, and we're going to meet three men in this chapter. Uh, it may be familiar to you. Uh, it'll appear on the wall or on your screen. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Willie James Jennings, in his book on Acts that I've been using as a source for this study, writes this, No one is more dangerous than one with the power to take life 
and who already has mind and sight set on those who are a threat to a safe future. Such a person is a closed circle, relying on the inner coherence of their logic. Their authority confirms their argument, and their argument justifies their actions, and their actions reinforce the appropriateness of the authority. Violence, in order to be smooth, elegant, and seemingly natural, needs people who are closed circles. But what Saul does not yet know is that the road to Damascus has changed. It is space now inhabited by the wayfaring spirit of God. Saul pursues, but he is being pursued. Saul, like Egal Amir, is bent on violence. He's focused on it. He's in his circle. And everything matches in that circle. Everything makes sense. There's only one thing that can change him, and that is a breakthrough from outside. And as he's going down that road, that's what happens. This light comes, and he hears this voice who says, Saul, Saul. And in some mystery, we don't know how this happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. Saul recognized who it was, Jesus or No, he says, who are you, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Saul experienced, says Jennings, the Lord Jesus. He encountered him, and this made Saul vulnerable. Experiencing the Lord Jesus makes, his, makes you vulnerable. Saul was blind. He had to be led by the hand. For three days... He could not eat or drink or did not eat or drink anything. His world of power, of authority, of religious and national conviction and dedication was gone. He was a focused man. And then Jesus broke in and opened him up and made him vulnerable. And then in Acts 9, we meet another man, and we'll start now with verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests, to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying in his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking, and taking food, he was strengthened. So here's this Ananias in Damascus, a disciple of Jesus. How he heard about Jesus, we don't know. But he certainly was at risk of his life and his liberty. And he gets a vision. And Jesus says, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, and there you'll meet Saul. Place your hands on him to restore his sight. And Simon knows, or Ananias knows right away that this is dangerous. He's running into the arms of Yigal Amir. And he protests. Says he's come here. This man has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name, including, including me. If I walk into that house, I'm walking right into his hands. The Lord tells him to go anyway. And he goes. Jennings writes, writes this. Ananias knows a truth about Saul. An indisputable truth. Saul is a killer of disciples. So now a disciple must face a decision. Do I act on a truth about someone? A truth that, many, that may put me in danger? Or do I follow the word of the Lord and touch this dangerous person? Do I follow the truth that I see? Or do I follow the word of the Lord? God sees differently than us, said Jennings. The question always for disciples is, can we see with God? Can we see those who are in rumor or in truth dangerous? Or can we see those who are in rumor or truth dangerous as God sees them, and I love this line, with a future drenched in divine desire. How do I look at the other person? Is it someone dangerous, someone with whom there's barriers? Or can I look with the eyes of God? Can I see someone who has a future that is drenched in divine desire. And Ananias goes. And he says, Brother Saul. He lays his hands on him. And Saul sees again. And Saul was baptized. And Ananias disappears from the scene. He's done his job. And then we read further in Acts 9. Starting from verse 19. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he, that is Saul, was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this not, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose? to bring them bound before the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proof this was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul, 
They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So Saul, who has now become a Jesus follower, experiences the same kind of persecution that he had been meeting out to Jesus followers. Damascus. And then he goes to Jerusalem, as we just read. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. Can you imagine what kind of a scene that was? They were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And then Barnabas shows up. We've met Barnabas back in Acts chapter 4. Right before the story of Ananias and Sapphira, it says this, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is this son of encouragement. And you can see how he's doing that in this story. He brings Saul to the apostles, and he tells them the story. He must have met Saul and talked with him of how Saul was converted on the road to Damascus. And he tells them how Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas is the go-between between Saul and the apostles, the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. Barnabas listens to Saul and takes him at his word and joins him and walks with him through these difficult days of initiation into this group, which Saul had formerly been trying to imprison and to kill. Jennings puts it this way. There is no fanfare to Barnabas's action. It's not signaled by divine intervention, by a vision like Ananias but it's an action of marvelous faith and thereby totally and completely guided by the spirit. It is faith in God in another belief in the workings of Jesus in the life of someone others will not trust. This is quiet redemption found in the simple act of taking hold of someone who stands alone waiting for help. And what struck me as I thought about, read and thought about this this story is these three different men. These three different men are put on the stage. 
The first one, of course, is Saul, this powerful man. Deeply and, 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 and completely committed to his nationalist vision. And willing to kill to ensure that it happens, like Yigal Amir. He's violent. Powerful. He's in this circular thinking that he can't get out of. And his acts are justified to himself. They make perfect sense until Jesus breaks in. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Enneagram. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I don't know all that much about it. But I think it is, for many people, a very helpful way of understanding who you are. And as I thought about Saul, I thought he's probably Enneagram number one, and you can look it up yourself. I'm not going to go through it all now. The reformer. Going to make sure that things happen. And then there's Ananias, this quiet disciple. He's aware of his environment. He knew about Saul's persecutions, and he knew that Saul was coming to Damascus, and he knew why Saul was coming to Damascus. Somehow he, his antenna were up. He was honest. When God came to him and said, go to Saul, he said, yeah, but it's going to be dangerous. But he was courageous. He went. And I'm sure all of you know the adage, have heard this, that courage is being without fear. It's moving in spite of your fears. And I placed Ananias in Enneagram number five, the investigator. He's thinking things through, figuring things out, wondering what's going to happen, but still willing to take his movements. And then there's Barnabas, this quiet guy, no fanfare. No visions, there's no violence, there's no power, there's no grabbing. He's like this invisible glue, this invisible magnetic force that brings people together, that goes out and seeks Saul who's alone, sees his authenticity, sees the change, brings him in, introduces him to the others, and just provides this this web of connection. And I saw in him Enneagram, oh, I got the number wrong. I don't know if it's five or whatever, but it's the helper. This, this glue type person. The person who quietly brings people together. And here's what I want to say. As you look at each three of these men, and this is nothing new to you. I'm sure you've heard it many, many times before. Whoever you are, and I literally mean whoever you are, God has made you, God has given you your gifts and abilities and your skills and your talents, your personality, the way you move through life. He's done that for a reason. He's done that because he loves you. And he's done that because he has something for you to accomplish. Something for you to do 
for his kingdom. And so I want to encourage those of you who, for whatever reason, may be thinking, I, I, I really can't do X, Y, or Z. I can't be X, Y, or Z. I'm not that kind of a person. Say, it doesn't matter. God has made you who you are. And he's made you for that, for a particular reason, to serve him and to be his messenger into the world in which he has sent you. And then go back to what Willie James Jennings said. The question always for disciples is, can we see with God? Can we see others with as having a future drenched in divine desire? Then the other thing I'd like to encourage you in is this. You know, it's pretty easy, especially in our world today, to go through life and to not really pay that much attention to other people and to pretty much do what I want to do and to pretty much set myself in the center. It's really pretty easy to do. And it doesn't even matter much how big your social life is or how many friends you have. It's still pretty easy to just say, you know, this is comfortable for me. This is where I want to stay. And what you see in this chapter is God in all kinds of ways breaking in and moving people out of their normal trajectory into the movement of his kingdom as it expands. Seeing people as being people who are drenched with a future drenched in divine desire. And once you catch that vision, everything changes. And your life has purpose and your life has meaning that's outside of yourself. That's more than just you. And when you combine that with the personality that God has given you, and you put those two together, then you can move into a life of fruitfulness and a life that is, has impact on other people, a life that changes history, not just for today, but for forever. So my encouragement from these three men is number one, whoever you are, whatever your Enneagram number is, I think there are 10 of them, God's made you that way. And he loves you in it. And number two is, how could God break you out of your circle of selfishness and move you into seeing things the way God sees them? Seeing his world and his people and all people as having a future drenched in divine desire. And I just, I just love that phrase, drenched in divine desire. Because I think that's what Jesus had as he went to the cross. In those terrible, in those terrible days of betrayal 
and of unjust uh, trial and of condemnation and of crucifixion and of torture and of hanging there on that cross. What had to have motivated him and kept him going, being willing to do it, as he prayed, Father, not my will, but your will be done, because I see a future that's drenched in your divine desire. And if you want to be able to go through life in this way, then Jesus is your source for that. What he did on the cross not only changes everything, but it gives us the power to live a life that is connected with him and that helps move his kingdom forward through this world, whatever your particular situation and task and job and circumstances might be. And that's why we're now going to go to the table of the Lord to reconfess and rekindle our faith and our trust in him. And as we partake of the elements, as we actually take into our mouths the bread and the, and, and the juice, as small as they are, something really changes in our body and in our spirits. We're fed and we're nourished so that we can go out into the world that God's made us and be the Ananias or the Saul, or the Barnabas, or the whoever else that you are.